Welcome to episode 177, Polyvagal Theory, Hacking the Stress Response, featuring Gabrielle Giuliano Villani, licensed clinical social worker. Make sure to subscribe to be alerted about future episodes by Clearly Clinical. Learn, grow, shine. Hello to our listeners. My name is Beth Irias, and I am excited today to be talking with Gabrielle Giuliano Villani. She is a licensed clinical social worker, and one of her specializations is polyvagal theory, its application, its clinical use, and even its use for us as clinicians in terms of our own stress response and self-regulation. Thank you so much for joining us, Gabrielle. Thank you for having me. So before we dive into a really fascinating topic, why don't you take a minute and talk with our listeners about yourself and your background and how you came to have this understanding and specialization in polyvagal? Sure. So I am a licensed clinical social worker, and obviously we talk about mindfulness all the time in our field. Um, But when I started my EMDR training, that was the first time I had kind of a glimpse into polyvagal theory because if you're an EMDR therapist, you probably know we talk about the window of tolerance a lot and being hypo or hyper aroused. But that was kind of the end of it. And I wanted to learn more, but to me, it felt very like too much science (laughs) as a therapist. And I just ended up having a really amazing EMDR consultant who has become a close friend of mine who specialized in polyvagal theory. And we just did a lot of work around it. She broke it down for me. I did my own trainings. Um, lots of reading of Deb Dana's work, who's really big in the field of polyvagal theory. And started using it with clients and just found that it resonated so much with them. And even with me, I my own therapist is polyvagal informed, does EMDR, uses parts work, and all of those things together really helped me understand myself and also really helped me through my burnout journey. So I've talked before and we were talking earlier about how I sold my group practice due to my own burnout. And that just really gave me a better understanding of how I work and how burnout works too, because everything I read about burnout, it's changing a little bit now, but for the most part, it would just be like self-care and take a vacation and take a break. And nobody really explains why that's important and how to go deeper with that. So I kind of took both of those things and here I am with you talking about it. Awesome. Thank you. I think the topic of self-care has become an interesting one because I think it's used sometimes to feel like a band-aid on Mm -hmm. a major, major wound and it's just (laughs) not going to work, whether that's for (laughs) clinicians or for clients. When we are severely burnt out, it's an understanding of how our bodies are, I guess, behaving in that state. And I appreciate you bringing that up um, for our listeners that want to learn more about specifically burnout, compassion, fatigue. We do have some really excellent episodes. I'm sure we'll continue to add more episodes on this topic because (laughs) it's it's such a real part of the human experience and unfortunately such a common part of the credence for clinicians. Um, So Gabrielle, why don't we start just by you defining polyvagal theory and giving us the science 101 
as we launch into this conversation in understanding polyvagal and then its application to the work that we do. Yeah, so polyvagal theory was uh, developed by Dr. Stephen Porges. He is a psychiatrist, and he's the one who discovered this or did the research on it uh, back in the early 90s. And his research was about um, the vagus nerve and its role in our social connection, our emotional regulation, and our fear response. Um, And so he's the one who started that work. But Deb Dana, who I mentioned earlier, I find her work a little bit easier to digest. And she's worked really closely with Dr. Porges, and she has a lot of really fantastic books about polyvagal theory. But what this theory says is that, well, first of all, this part is not a theory. We all have a nervous system, and we all have a vagus nerve that comes out the back of our head from our brainstem, and it touches all of these different organs in our body. And it's also responsible for our automatic or autonomic nervous system. So those control automatic things like breathing and digestion and our heart rate variability. And so when we are in a regulated state or we're feeling really good, we are in what's called, often called um, rest and digest or safe and connected. And that is basically the ventral vagal state of our nervous system. That is where our digestion is really good, our immune response is good, and we're able to effectively connect with other people. We're compassionate, we're joyful, and we're mindful. But As we know, life happens and there might be stressors, there might be a client that triggers you, and that will put you into fight or flight, which is your sympathetic nervous system. And most people know what that means (laughs) when they're in fight or flight. You probably know what it feels like. Um, You have all kinds of things happening internally too. So it's not just that feeling of like fear or anxiety, but there's cortisol and adrenaline and other hormones being dumped into your bloodstream. And when you're in that place, another really important piece of this is that your frontal lobes of your brain, which is where we make good decisions, like logical, rational decisions, completely goes offline. And we are more in that fear-based state. So that's why when you like, you know, you watch a scary movie and you're like, why is she doing that? That's such a dumb decision. (laughs) That is a really good example of what it's like to be in that state. Like you were just trying to do what you need to do to protect yourself and you might not be making logical decisions. And when you spend too much time here or your body is really just had enough, you move into your freeze response. And this is actually where burnout lives. So this is your body's immobility. And this is your like, yeah, like your emergency response, your dorsal vagal state of your nervous system. And again, here you are numb, dissociated, depressed, you might feel shame. And I've even seen this also with myself now looking back, but even with clients, like their affect changes, um, their eye contact changes. And this is like your body just going into total like hibernation mode, I guess is how I think about it. Um, And then you go back through the cycle. 
So it's normal. Like everybody, we all have stress and we all do this. But when we see people with trauma, um, you know, they might be bouncing back between fight or flight or freeze all the time or just staying in one place. Thank you for painting the picture. When it comes to a freeze state, knowing that these things are all adaptive, they're things that our bodies were designed to do. When does it become problematic that we have flipped over into that freeze state or into a fear state and we're having trouble getting out of it? I mean, is that exactly it? Once you're having trouble getting out of it, is that the problem? Like, where does it become like, uh uh-oh? I think it becomes that when you think about the impact that it has on your functioning. So like I said, it's normal for us to go through all of those things. And I also want people and if you're working with clients too to hear this like it's not there's no shame right like we this is just a response to our environment that's happening but if you find that yeah you are in freeze and you can't get out of bed for seven days and you're not going to work and now you can't pay your bills like that is the impact that it has on your functioning so I think that is when it becomes problematic is when we can't function normally. Um, But there are good things that come from it too. Like I always say when I'm in my freeze response, that's when it forces me to rest. That's when I kind of like recharge my batteries, especially because I'm very introverted. Um, So that forces me to just like not socialize and just do what I need to do to get back to my baseline. So it sounds like for you, you view it as a warning sign or an invitation for a readjustment ideally for some kind of behavior change to try to jumpstart the body out of freeze? Like, is that the right way to think about it? Yeah, I think you can think about it that way. And I I know that now. <laughs> I did not know that a couple of years ago, where that's where I spent a lot of time and was trying to force myself to work in a way that wasn't conducive to me and trying to really like push through that and push through burnout and it wasn't happening. (laughs) I think many of us can relate with that. (laughs) (laughs) That's why I like to mention it, especially right now. Um, just with so many people coming to me, knowing that I talk about burnout and I, you know, I post a lot of videos on social media about it. And I just, I like to be honest about that, that I was, I, we've all been there and it happens. I'm glad that we're talking about it because I think there was a time where we didn't see it as a very real potential side effect of the work and of just, and Mm -hmm. as we record (laughs) this, it's 2023 and goodness knows that the last few years have been for just about everybody um, with a lot of pushing and throttling up when you needed to relax. Yes. So going back to what you were saying about the vagus nerve, that it, basically touches all these different systems in our bodies. How does that physiological knowledge play out in our emotional experience of the world? I love that question. And I like the way that you phrased it. So when I think about polyvagal theory, like in kind of easier way to think about it too, if this does feel like a lot of science and you're listening and you're like, I have no idea what the hell she's talking about. I think about it as like, this is the science behind why mindfulness works. So 
And we have all probably experienced that. I know that, again, when I'm in fight or flight or freeze, like I'm snippier, I'm more irritable. And that is a red flag or a warning sign to me that like I need to use my skills. I need to go for a walk. I need to get off my phone and take a break from social media because I'm not in a place right now where I can function at my best. And so that is just, you know, information that we use um, on how we're responding or how we need to regulate ourselves or knowing that, again, like it could be a trigger or um, a red flag, like maybe somebody has crossed a boundary with you. And now you're understanding like, right, I need to keep that boundary because here I am pissed off and irritable. And it's something that I could have controlled in the first place. Tell me more about how mindfulness calms, deactivates. I don't know what the right language is. But <laughs> yeah, either of those work. <laughs> yeah, how, how mindfulness meditation, what I think many of us think of as quote unquote, like relaxation, how that links back to what's going on with the vagus nerve. Because I think in my mind, I'm visualizing like this in an optimal environment, this like smooth, happy vein type thing that's running down from my brain. And then when it's angry, it's like bright red and it's throbbing and it's not a good thing. Um, is, is that an accurate representation? Like how do we kind of visualize this process? Um, that is perfect because part of what I do when I'm teaching this to people, or even when I was doing it with clients is something that Deb Dana calls the polyvagal ladder or mapping your nervous system. And so that's exactly what you do. You do visualize, how do I feel in fight or flight? How do I feel in freeze? How do I feel in rest and digest? And not just the feeling, but does it have a color? Does it have a texture? Is there a sound? Is there something else that goes along with that? Um, so yes, that's good to think about that. And what is also amazing is that we are all unique. And so what brings me back to my rest and digest state isn't going to be the same thing that works for you. So when I hear people say, like, I hate meditating, I'm like, that's fine. You don't have to. <laughs> don't do that. What makes you feel calm? Do you like to go for a walk? Do you like to dance? Like, I'm also a Zumba instructor. So for me, that's like one of my things that I like to do. But a lot of people hate dancing. So that's not going to work for them. So it's really just about slowing down and paying attention to when you're feeling those like good, joyful moments. Um, and also knowing that when you are in that place, it's not just that feeling of being good, but again, it's your frontal lobes of your brain are online and it is taking you out of a place where you are spinning and worrying and spiraling and having all of those anxious thoughts and doing something like we just did some deep breathing together when we started doing something like that. It does. It touches your vagus nerve. And when that happens, you are your frontal lobes are back online. You're present and you're grounded. And when you're in the here and now, you're paying attention to the here and now. You're not worrying about what's going to happen tomorrow or spiraling with intrusive thoughts. It's a distraction, but it's also a physical response to that you are grounded in this moment. When thinking about mental health conditions, so 
let's say generalized anxiety disorder and panic disorder. Let's say, let's pull out those two. How does polyvagal, if we extend it beyond fight, flight, freeze, and expand it out of that instantaneous experience where we almost get hit while we're driving and then our heart rate spikes up and then we eventually calm back down. If we move Mm -hmm. out of those kind of episodic experiences and into the longer term, how does polyvagal kind of bump into diagnoses, at least as defined by the DSM? Yes. So it's helpful to do this work with your clients because of that. So you can help them understand when I am feeling anxious, this is what's happening. The other thing that's really important that I didn't touch on yet, so I'll talk about it now, is part of this theory is uh, neuroception. And neuroception talks about that our nervous system is responding every single second to what is happening. It is scanning our environment for signs of safety or signs of threat or danger. And so if you are somebody who is anxious or has panic disorder, you might have faulty neuroception where you know, you're like, why am I freaking out and having a panic attack right now? But it's really your body's response to your environment. So kind of takes the ego and the mind out of it because your body is feeling unsafe and it's having that response. And panic disorder is actually the perfect example that you can also have blended states. So you might not be in just one at a time. Sometimes you're kind of in between or in both. And so having a panic attack is when you're completely frozen, right? Like you're immobilized, but your sympathetic nervous system is firing off at the same time. So you're having symptoms of being in both at the same time. Interesting. Okay. So you're saying, if I'm extrapolating that if we think of conditions in the DSM, that there's often some kind of relationship back to stimulation or activation of the nervous system and of the vagus nerve, but in different states. Yes. Do you use that as a clinician? Do you use that with clients? Just like, what is the psychoeducation blurb that you give to clients to kind of explain this? Because I, I've absolutely have I've absolutely had the experience where clients have been sometimes given that band-aid response where it's like, well, I'm really upset because I've had all these huge things happen and major losses in the last few months and I'm just always activated and I just feel devastated. And then someone's like, well, just get a massage. You know, like, yeah. Calm me down. Or just do some deep breathing and then it'll all be fine. Um, so it's like, how, how do you encapsulate, I guess, the seriousness of the impact of this for clients in a way that's digestible, because I think it can feel oversimplified to just be like, we'll do some deep breathing. (laughs) Yes, exactly. (laughs) And it doesn't feel very validating. Like, I mean, anybody who's listening or who has even worked with a client who has anxiety or who has had panic disorder, like that's not helpful in the moment, right? Like I can't, I can't access that. Um, So how I explain this to clients is kind of similarly to how I did in the beginning. I talk about that we all have a nervous system. We have these three stages of responses. And then I work with them to map their nervous system and to say like, what's What does it look like when you're in rest and digest? What feels good down there? Like when you are feeling 
your best, what does that look like? And sometimes they're like, I don't know. And I'm like, well, tell me about a time when you felt really happy, even if it was 30 years ago, because I worked with a lot of older adults. And so sometimes they would be like, I can't think of anything. And so I'll say like, you know, what about on your wedding day? Or what about like the best day that you had in your career? something like that to just kind of elicit that. And sometimes there's only like one thing and that's totally fine. And that's where I I like using this because it takes that shame away from it. So it's, I just tell people like, this is just your body responding to your environment. It's just a response. So let's talk about what that looks like for you and how you can use this to understand yourself better when you are responding to other people or when maybe you are feeling dysregulated. Like you can take out this sheet of paper where we mapped your nervous system and know like, oh yeah, the last time I was in this situation, that totally pushed me over the edge. And that's when I had that rage response and I threw the book at my wall where my kids were in the room. Like that helps us gain a better understanding of of how to use it and to understand that it's not always like what we're thinking, it's what's happening inside. Um, And also I talk about the what's happening physically too, because, and I have like a little graphic that I show clients, which I think is really helpful also. Um, And talking about like, this is not just how you're feeling, but this is cortisol and adrenaline and all of this stuff that's being put into your body and leads to inflammation. And we know what inflammation (laughs) leads to. Um, So it does have a bigger impact than just in the moment. I don't know if this question is fair game. So feel free to shoot it down (laughs) if it's not. As we learn more about neurodivergence and sensitivity of nervous systems, if at all, how does polyvagal relate to sensory processing, for example? I will be the first to say that I don't know a ton about that. And I am recently diagnosed with ADHD myself, so I'm still learning. But what I have learned about myself and my own experience is that I am not really paying attention. (laughs) And so I pop into these little different responses and I don't even realize it's happening because I'm just going, going, going. And I'm so in my head with all the the things that are happening up there that I'm not paying attention to how I'm feeling. And I do know that people who are more sensitive or who are neurodivergent usually cycle through those three stages more quickly or get there more quickly. And I've noticed that about myself that when I am overstimulated, it's, I, you know, have to make peace with this. I think that I can push through and that I'm like, this isn't a big deal. Other people are doing it. It's fine. And I've learned that I need to listen to myself and slow down when I need to slow down. And if I am in an environment that like, for example, I was just uh, speaking at a conference in Costa Rica, which was amazing last month, but I was very overstimulated and I could see that other people were fine with all the socializing and all of the interaction, but I knew that I needed more downtime. And I think that was the first time where I really like didn't shame myself for that. I was like, this is just what I need right now. And this is not good or bad. This is just what I need. I need to be alone 
and not talking to anybody. And then I can go back out and be a better person and be more responsive and be more connected to people because right now I'm just really irritated and I don't want to talk to anybody. (laughs) Thank you for your transparency. I think it's important to acknowledge that aspect of it, of just individualization and for any of us to understand and recognize how our bodies might be different than whoever we're comparing it to. Because certainly I've had the same experience of this, you know, these people seem to be okay with this, but this doesn't feel Mm -hmm. comfortable for me. And I'm sure everybody has, but instead of that triggering, uh, well, I need to do better. I need to push harder or I need to be less social or whatever it is. It's this recognition of like, well, here's my body's kind of set point, I guess. And working within those changes Again, for our listeners, just so we have them in mind, can you restate those three different aspects of the nervous system? And we'll continue talking through them as as we progress in this interview, but just to restate again, those three different stages. Yes. So we have rest and digest, which is your ventral vagal. That's like the baseline, the mindfulness, compassion, connection. Then we have fight or flight, which is your sympathetic nervous system. Again, everybody probably knows what that feels like. And then we have freeze, which is also, um, it's actually your dorsal vagal. And that is also part of your parasympathetic nervous system. So there's two sides to the parasympathetic, one that goes towards the back and one that goes towards the front. The back is dorsal freeze. The front is ventral vagal rest and digest. Was that too much information? That's my ADHD over explaining no, everything. No, it was, it, was, it was actually so succinct um, and, and okay. easy, at least for me to understand. I appreciate that. Um, but, I, but I think it's helpful even just you breaking that down because we're so used to thinking of fight, flight, or freeze as existing in the same categories that, well, I guess they're all problem states, quote unquote, if you will, um, activation states. But I think that separation of saying, well, these two go over here, but this one actually goes over here and it functions differently in our bodies, I think an important reminder. And then also this idea that there is this healthier, not necessarily, I guess it's really a necessary component to remember, which is rest and digest. That's part of it too, that it's not, (laughs) that it's not this non-existent state, this baseline. It's this important thing that we need to nurture and need to be aware when we've clicked out of that into fight or flight or into freeze. And then how do we get back? Yes. Yes. And to clarify, and I think you stated this earlier, it's really kind of hierarchical. So moving from the resting state into fight or flight, and then we escalate up into freeze. Can you jump from rest into freeze? Or does it always kind of go fight or flight freeze? It always moves through fight or flight. So it does go through the hierarchy. And so that's another important thing to point out too, because sometimes, again, especially for those of us who are not very mind body aware. (laughs) You might be like, I don't even know how I got here. Why do I feel like this? And it's just about slowing down, paying attention. Like there are little triggers that are telling you like, hey, this is happening right now. We're getting a little bit stressed. Okay, the stress is too much. Here we go. So it takes work. And um, again, it's 
I feel like I keep saying this phrase. I need to, I need a synonym, but (laughs) it is, um, it's okay. Like this is normal that we go through all of these things. And so our, you know, whatever you want to say for normal, but it's, uh, what our bodies do is to go through these three phases. But what's not healthy or helpful is when you are spending like even a majority of your life in fight or flight or freeze because you can't, you cannot be connected to the world when you're in that place. You've already touched upon it. And I want to go back to build it out more. We live in an environment now where there's been more and more conversation about the impact on our bodies and on our nervous systems and on our health at large of trauma, knowing that trauma comes in all different shapes and sizes and different lived experiences. Can you talk a little bit about the relationship between polyvagal theory and trauma and how to kind of make it from, oh, this, this thing happened and it activated my nervous system to an understanding of here are the kind of the long-term consequences of that and how somebody shows up in the world. Yes, that's also a great question. And people who have had trauma have faulty neuroception. So that means that like when you have a trauma response or you're triggered and you're like, why did that trigger me? That was so stupid. It was so small. Why do I feel that way? It takes away that shame and that blame of like, I'm responsible for this when really it's just your body responding to your environment. Um, So thinking more of like a a bottom up approach, like you can't think your way out of how you're feeling. And, uh, you know, we all experienced trauma together in 2020. So that's a really good example. Um, I mean, I think everybody has a experience from the pandemic that probably relates to this somehow. Um, But just thinking about our clients who have trauma, or if you have trauma, again, you're going to have faulty neuroception. And your window of tolerance, which is your rest and digest, might be very small. And so you might have spend a lot of time or get very easily activated to go into your fight or flight or your freeze. And so those windows or stages might be a lot bigger. And I have had clients who, again, are like, I, I can't, I can't use like my mindfulness skills right now. And I am just totally in a freeze response. And it's like, that's okay. That's just building awareness. You just need to become aware of your nervous system. It's not about trying to force yourself to always be in rest and digest and always be like very compassionate. Like that's not how life works and you don't want to force it. It's just about building that awareness, starting to maybe build that tolerance of like, okay, maybe this is a small little skill that I can use in these moments. Now I'm starting to, now that I'm slowing down and paying more attention, like I know, okay, this is what it looks like when I'm here, or these are the things that get me here. And this is the time when I need to slow down. I need to do less socializing. I need more couch time with Bravo. That's what I do. (laughs) So uh, it's really just about, Deb Dana calls it befriending your nervous system. And it's just about building that awareness to take away that shame if you have had trauma or if you have had clients who have experienced trauma. 
You mentioned earlier about mapping the nervous system and using terms like what color is it or what kind of texture is it. Can you talk a little bit about that and why that intervention used? Yes. So I love doing this because we get to do like arts and crafts and it's fun. And (laughs) that is always, you know, switches it up in the therapy room. And I will also say that if you are a therapist and you feel like you have clients that you're stuck with or you don't know what to do with them, like this can be a really good tool to use in those kinds of sessions. And Deb Dana has... um, like a template, but you don't need to use that. I just use a piece of paper and I break it up into three sections, one for rest and digest, one for fight or flight, and one for freeze. And then we go through and we start with fight or flight. And the reason that we start there is because if we went in order, we would end at freeze. And that's not really a good place to end because it's often pretty dark. So we start in fight or flight. And I will just ask, like, what happens when you're here? If you don't know, can you think of a time when you felt anxious or angry? What happened? What did it look like? And again, asking, is there a color, a sound, a texture, just to get people to, again, build that awareness and understand what it feels like for them. And sometimes they might not be able to say, like, I feel like this, but they might be like, it's red. It's red and throbbing when I'm here. (laughs) And I also ask, and this is also from Deb Dana, um, in each little section, I ask people to write down, I am and the world is. So I am blah, blah, blah when I'm in fight or flight. The world is blah, blah, blah when I'm in fight or flight. And that helps them understand what they believe about themselves and what they believe about their environment when they're in that place. And then we move to freeze and we do the same thing there. And then we'll move to our ventral vagal, our rest and digest and end there. And that's always a good place to end because that is where we're mindful, we're compassionate, we're connected, all of those things. Um, And so again, sometimes people will be like, I can't think of anything, or I can only think of like, I don't know, blue. I'm like, that's okay. This, that's fine. Like, it's not to shame you. um, It's to build understanding. And so another like client example, um, that'll change a little bit, but when I did this with a client who his was very obvious. And so he um, had a kid that they adopted through the foster system and this kid and him just really triggered each other. And so this is what we used this for because what ended up happening was, you know, all these things would happen. He would get pushed into fight or flight and he would get really angry and he would rage. And then he would do something in those moments, like punch a hole in the wall when the kids were in the room. And then afterwards that he would move into freeze and he would become very depressed. Um, when I would have sessions with him in those moments, his like skin was gray. He, he had no eye contact. Like you could just see that he had a very flat affect. And so for him, that was a really good example of like, this is what it looks like when you're moving through those things. And now let's pay attention because when you were in fight or flight, what was happening there? 
because your kid's not going away. So (laughs) what were they doing in those moments? What was it hitting at for you so that you know next time, maybe that's when we take a break or I need to go into the other room for a couple of minutes or whatever it is that you need to do so you don't punch a hole in the wall when your kids are in the room. And obviously that causes way more implications than if we could just handle it in those moments. It sounds like then it's really about building insight into one's own process and then trying to basically exit the freeway before having the proverbial car accident. Yes. To interrupt the <laughs> That's a good way of thinking about it. <laughs> and if you can, it's like I always like when we're working with people with trauma, it does take a, like some time to understand that. But even just making those little changes can make a huge difference. Like, again, another example is when I was running my group practice and I was very burnt out. And one of the reasons why is because my staff was two hours behind because they lived in Colorado and I was in Florida and they would be calling me for supervision or questions or texting me. And it's like nine o'clock at night here. And I would get really annoyed. But guess who was answering them? I was. (laughs) So that was a me problem that I wasn't sticking to my boundaries and I was getting triggered. And that was information for me that I needed to use to make a change and knowing even like I would even say like, I'm really pissed off right now and I'm so annoyed. Like, why are they bothering me? And I knew that when I was also in that place of being annoyed and bothered, that wasn't a good time for me to respond because I couldn't be compassionate passionate in those moments. Thank you again for the clear example of it. Um, One of the things that's coming up for me is I'm talking about this, but I feel like we're kind of talking about the optimal situation when, when somebody isn't in heavy bereavement or they're not experiencing a whole lot of trauma. When we're stepping outside the ideal, if you will, into somebody who has a whole lot of life stressors or somebody who just had a really significant loss, where it feels like effectively they're stuck in a state, how does that, and, and you know, going back to burnout, how does that shift what our response needs to be to get us back into rest and digest when it becomes this chronic state where we're in fight or flight or in freeze to try to force us back in, but understanding that you are locked in <laughs> to that state because of, <laughs> because of either past life experiences getting brought up again or current life circumstances. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And those are like life happens, right? And we might be in that place if you do have like, I don't know, intense losses or multiple and significant losses at one time and being kind of feeling like you're stuck there. And so I always go back to what is the um, impact on your functioning? And so what does that look like? And because we want, I want people to build awareness and not feel shame, but we also can't live a good life if you're in a burnout phase or if you're in freeze. And I can attest to that personally. And so I would suggest, you know, finding those little glimmers or moments of when you do feel maybe it's not even happiness, maybe it's just like good or um, grounded 
or calm and what do those look like? And if you don't know what those look like, you can do some things to increase your vagal tone or stimulate your vagus nerve. And those are mindfulness. So that might be deep breathing. Um, We talked about this earlier, but your vagus nerve goes right behind your diaphragm. And so when you do deep belly breaths and you engage your diaphragm, it touches your vagus nerve and it relaxes you. And there's lots and lots of research about that. Um, You can, again, do whatever feels good for you. And if that doesn't feel accessible, like you're like, I don't want to do deep breathing, maybe it's journaling, maybe it is doing five, four, three, two, one. Um, You can also give yourself a little ear massage because it touches the nerves back there. So you can, um, I'm wearing headphones, but you can like pull on your ears on both of them. You can rub on them, whatever feels good. Whenever I get a massage, that's like my favorite part is when they do that because it does really relax me. So I think having a toolbox of like these little skills, like in the moment when maybe you do feel like so overwhelmed that you're like, I don't know what to do. Maybe it is like, okay, I'm going to take three deep breaths, start small and just go from there. Because the more that you do it, the more that you strengthen your relaxation response and lessen that stress response. So we'll, you'll have a bigger window of tolerance, basically more resources. So find things that work for you. I mentioned a couple. Um, Deb Dana has a book on, which it's far away over there, but it's about polyvagal exercises for safety. And I think she has 50 or 100 in there that you can use um, with your clients or for yourself or to teach your clients. Like this is, these are some things that you can do in the moment. These are some things where you can start to increase your window of tolerance. As you're describing both the application of polyvagal to therapeutic work, but also the tools that can be used, I'm seeing a lot of overlap with interventions, maybe different language coming from other theoretical models and even manualized practices. Can you speak to that just a little bit to do a little bit of translation for our listeners that that are hardcore trained DBT therapists for our listeners that are super passionate about EMDR. And obviously we can't go through all of them, but as you're talking, I'm certainly like picking out certain concepts of like, Oh, there's the stress tolerance. Like, and, and I, I think it's, it's helpful to give that, I guess, framework because it seems like, while this is a theory, quote unquote, it is a theoretical in its application to understand that it basically layers over or underneath all of this other stuff that we're doing, whether that's utilization of mindfulness or we're doing art therapy. So can you talk about that kind of with different models? Yes. And that is true. And that is also something that I felt when I started learning about this, I was like, oh, this is just like, we kind of already know about this, but it's really just like the deeper science and understanding. But yes, it is distress tolerance. Even, um, you know, one of the biggest distress tolerance skills is like holding an ice cube, right? Until it melts or splashing cold water. And it's the science behind that because when you do that, it stimulates your vagus nerve. So like cold water plunges stimulate your vagus nerve. So that is why you can have that distress tolerance it's just the science behind all of those things. Um, so yes, 
to DBT for EMDR, it's, you know, you're being hypo aroused or hyper aroused and thinking about the window of tolerance and increasing um, people's resourcing for stress and for trauma responses. The window of tolerance is ventral vagal, basically. And so that's what we're doing there. And that's why we put more resources there. And we teach clients about mindfulness or other skills that they can use to manage that stress to make that bigger so that we're not popping out of our window of tolerance um, so easily. And what other theories could go with this. I guess as far as art therapy, I don't know. I love art therapy and I'm not an art therapist, but (laughs) I think it's the same thing. It's being mindful. You're being creative in the moment. And when you're in a creative flow state, you're in your rest and digest because you're able to be connected. And so that can be another um, tool to help you get there. And I also think you can use creative or expressive methods Like I mentioned, the mapping, but also maybe you're writing a letter to yourself. So I had a client who did this. She wrote a letter to herself because she noticed that there was something being triggered in her life and we pinned it back to an experience when she was like 10. So she wrote a letter to herself when she was 10 and then she used... um, colored pencils to circle the words that released it out to her in her favorite color. And then she used colors that were more like throbbing red or something like that to like scratch out the pieces that she felt were not like needed anymore or essential that she could let go of. Um, And so we kind of winded it in with that because we were doing this work where we were mapping her nervous system. And she was like, this is, this is the color that yellow is like where, when I'm feel happy and safe. And so she like circled words that made her feel happy and safe. So you could integrate it that way too. Thank you. I think that description is helpful. Going back to the trauma piece, knowing that for individuals who have a trauma history, you can kind of get locked in these states. For you as a therapist, is it really just nurturing that idea that 1% better is still 1% better? Because I think I think in our culture, we talk about self-care or relaxation so often as if it's like, well, you should be able to do this thing and then it's all fixed. And mm-hmm. did it... <laughs> That I also think that sets up clients because we have a culture now that if you walk down the aisle at the grocery store, you see kind of like these buzzwords and it's like, oh, well, self-care and relaxation and mindfulness. Um, But I think what can come alongside it is an unrealistic expectation. So when you have a client that, let's say, has been in freeze for weeks, if not months, what do you set up as a reasonable expectation for here? We're gonna we're gonna rub your earlobes for a while, like <laughs> yep. Like talk to me about that to, to kind of set up reasonable expectations with clients because they're so locked in. Like I just see that they're in this category, this column. Yeah, that they are just there's a brick wall around them on all angles. So how do we help yeah. kind of? undo that brick by brick by brick. It does feel like that. And even like when you are in that place, you feel like you can't. I mean, I've been there too. And I've worked with many clients who have said that and who have felt that. And 
it is what you said, 1% better is still 1%. So what is one small thing that you can do to, to help? What does that look like for you? Maybe it is just um, like, if you can, <laughs> doing instead of feeling motivated to do something, right? Just taking action. So if you are like, I really just want to go for a walk, but I'm just so exhausted and overwhelmed and I, I can't. Okay, walk around for 30 seconds. Like even that makes a difference. Um, that first of all, it gets you moving. Second of all, once you do it for 30 seconds, you'll probably keep doing it. And we know that exercise is very good for us for so many different reasons. Um, and so just adding in those teeny tiny little micro shifts, that's what it's all about. It's not like doing this big thing and having this huge self-care routine and a 20-step skincare to relax yourself at night. It's these little like micro shifts in your world that make you feel differently over time. So the effect of a key. Yes. You mentioned a few non-cognitive, non-emotional interventions for stimulation or relaxation of the vagus nerve. Can you talk more about that? Because I think we're at this kind of inflection point in the psychotherapy world of more recognition of brain and body and gut and breaking away from these very separate systems. So you had mentioned cold water, ice. I think it's important for us to remember that there are more paths to healing than just being able to talk it out. And goodness knows if someone's in a highly traumatized state, sometimes they can't talk it out and nor should they. So what are some of those things in your toolbox as someone who does this and knows this really well? What do you reach for when talk therapy or mindfulness or deep breathing are just simply not in the cards? I knew you were going to ask me this question. <laughs> and I'm probably going to say something that... Um, might not resonate with some people, but I actually really love sound healing. And that is another thing that I'm trained in. And um, I find it very powerful because you don't have to do anything. You can literally just lay there and relax because of the tones of the bowls are working with the vibrations off of your body to stimulate you or to relax you, you can do both. And so you can also um, do this in session with not just you banging on bowls, but you can have your clients do it too. Or if they are traumatized and they're like, I can't talk about it. Maybe there's a song that goes with it. Maybe you have um, like in sound healing, we have all different kinds of instruments. Maybe we they're banging on a drum. Maybe that helps them process that. Um, so those are some tools that I use. I also, um, what else? I talked about the cold water, which I really like. Another one that I reach for a lot is, um, and I'm not trained in tapping, but there is like a point right here, like kind of on your breastbone. And this is in Chinese medicine called the happiness point, And you can thump here and that also stimulates your vagus nerve. And that's something that pretty much anybody could do anywhere, anytime. So that might be another tool in the toolbox again, to just hit that for like 10 or 15 seconds. Thank you. Um, I'm sure you have more, but just for our listeners who can't see what Gabrielle is doing, <laughs> yes. if you if you were to basically take a line 
um, from the from your armpit across your chest and find the center of your chest on your breastbone. That's where Gabrielle was tapping. Um, and, and that, that spot right there, just so you can visualize that. So you've talked about ice, you've talked about vibration and sound, you've talked about tapping. I think the other part of this too, is sometimes it feels like self-care is something that comes with a big bank account. And I think it's important for us to offer resources to folks that they can do at home that are free, that are very inexpensive, because absolutely too often it's like, well, I'm going to go get my nails done. It's like, well, not everybody has that kind of money just sitting there to be able to get your nails done. So what are alternatives to that? I think is important. Um, Can things like a sound bath on YouTube still work? If we're trying to do this in a way that is affordable or free what are those interventions that we can give to people that they can do on their own that are not um, cognitive? Yes. Self-care to me sounds very privileged. And um, I think it was, who said this? I want to say it was Rebecca Case. She's somebody else who is an EMDR trainer. I think I got this from her where she said self-care is a privilege, but self-regulation is a survival tool. And that really resonated with me because that's what we're doing here. And I think of self-care as creating a life that I don't want to run away from. And yes, massages and getting my nails done, like that's really nice and it does relax me. But what makes me function at my best day to day? For me, that's like getting really good sleep. I have a very specific morning routine where I am lucky enough that I live in a place where I can do this. I sit outside and I have my coffee every day and I get morning light. And that is not just because it feels good, but there's also a lot of research that shows that, you know, this resets your circadian rhythm. It helps you sleep better. It um, helps stabilize your cortisol levels, and it also increases serotonin and dopamine. So there are a lot of things that you can do to just make your life function better. So that's how I think about it, is that what makes me have a life where I don't run away from it? Is it like putting, which I never do this, but this is another example. (laughs) Is it putting away your laundry right out of the dryer so that you don't feel stressed at the end of the day that you have like this pile of laundry that you have to deal with that you, you you just got home from work and now you're tired. Like create these little micro moments and routines that make you function at your best. No what your boundaries are. And if you don't know, your body will tell you, as we've discussed. Um, I also think it's really important to know what your values are and live by those values and do work professionally and personally that aligns with those things. Um, That I think is really helpful too. And then going back to sound healing, you can find, I have free ones. I do them on Instagram live all the time. You can find them on Instagram or YouTube or TikTok or Insight Timer. And even just listening to that for like a minute can be a really good reset. So there are a lot of free resources for pretty much whatever works for you. Movement, you could go for a walk, you could dance, you can just shake it out really quick, (laughs) whatever you need to do. Um, Yeah. Did that answer the question? It did. did. And and I appreciate you sharing the quote and the difference between self-care and self-regulation. 
when we are so deeply in a dysregulated state, because our lives might be demanded for that moment or for that period of time, however long or short that might be. I'm curious, knowing this is highly opinion-based, if you had that client that was super, super activated, working at a very high-stress job or in a very high-stress living environment or all of the things, what would you say is like, here's the one thing that I want you to try and do one time, just this? What would that be? Mm, That's a good question. And it is would depend, right, on what works for them. And this is kind of a bigger answer. But what I would do is I would tell them the one thing that you should do is slow down. So slow down and pay attention because it's not always doing more, but maybe it's doing less. So I know that can feel overwhelming too for people who do work in really high stress jobs or have had a lot of trauma. It's like, oh, now I have to add one more thing to the routine. Well, it's maybe it's the opposite. Do less. What can you do less of? What can you delegate? If you are somebody in um, a high stress work environment, that's one thing I always say. What can you delegate? What, what are the glass balls and what are the plastic balls? What can be dropped and what can't? Understand what those priorities or what those like top three things are that you really need to um, focus on. Thank you. Certainly sometimes part of the honor of the work we do is work with folks when they are deeply in that case of freeze <laughs> yes. or they're in activated fight or flight. And so it's it's this kind of therapeutic like containment of like, how do I <laughs> create an environment where it's even, you know, a tenth of a percent more relaxed when you know that they're spinning a million miles an hour. And and I'm sure also for listeners that we may be there ourselves because there are so many demands mm-hmm. and things ebb and flow throughout our lives that there are times when we're super activated. So what and it sounds like your takeaway is slowing down to use different language, but to to get back in your body even in small ways to kind of hold on through the thick of it until it might ebb and back off. Um You've given us, I think, a lot of helpful ideas, not just to conceptualize polyvagal theory, but how we might use it in the room and how we also might use it therapeutically to help ourselves better regulate. For folks who are listening that want to learn more about you and your work, what's the best way to do that? I'm all over the place. (laughs) I do a lot of different things. I'm multi-passionate, as they say. Um, But you can reach out to me on my website, which is GabrielleGiulianoVellani.com. It's the same on TikTok and YouTube and LinkedIn. And my Instagram is at GJV Consulting. And finally, if you need help with Medicare, I'm at MedicareConsultingForTherapists.com. Awesome. Thank you. You've mentioned a couple of resources in terms of learning more about polyvagal theory or its application, what are your favorites? What are your favorite websites, periodicals, books? Give us the quick kind of resource dump so that our listeners know where they can learn more on these ideas you've introduced today. Yes. YouTube has tons of resources. Um, You can look up Deb Dana on there. Um, Ariel Schwartz does some work on this too. That might be helpful. Um, Deb Dana is like my go-to resource. I love her newest book, Anchored. It's very easy to digest for both therapists and your clients as well if they want to learn more. 
Um, and she has she has quite a few books. She has the polyvagal exercises, and there is also um, like a flip chart that has the polyvagal ladder on it. And then the image that I use with my clients that I find the most helpful is from the movementparadigm.com. Thank you for coming and joining us today because you've covered so much, but I think in a way that's been really succinct and helpful to help paint this picture of polyvagal and then its use in therapy. I know you've certainly given me things to think about and now I want to go give myself an earlobe massage. Um, <laughs> we sign off. I'll be doing that. Um, thank you so much. I love that. <laughs> um, thank you so much, Gabrielle. This this really has been so informative, and I'm excited personally just to learn more about it, but also to be able to use it with clients. I think it's it's really a service. So thank you for taking time out of your day to come and talk with me and, and share this information with us. I really appreciate. Absolutely. It is my passion. And I hope that this helps people get a better understanding of polyvagal theory. This is, you know, high level, but it will give you enough information to start to understand and to get started. Fantastic. Thank you again. You've just finished listening to another exclusive continuing ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need continuing ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership, where you'll have access to our growing library of continuing ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.